Hello folks, as mentioned in episode 15, the French are going to get the first billing in the three-way race south in the late 1830s. In 1837, Charles Sebastien de Mont de Vieux, gout-riddled and mourning the death of his daughter to a cholera epidemic, the second child he and his wife had buried, made ready to head south. The primary objective of the expedition de Vieux led was visiting Pacific Islands, seeking opportunities for trade and ports for reprovisioning French ships, an extension of his previous Pacific work. As a means to demonstrate their visitations, the French government minted special expedition commemorative medallions. The crews could leave these with the people they encountered, and likely they would endure and be proudly shown to subsequent visitors, demonstrating French exploration primacy in the area. A secondary goal required de Vere assess British progress in colonising Australia and New Zealand, and gauge whether or not France still stood any chance of establishing its own colonies in these lands. Heading south to beat Waddell's record, or to reach the Pole, stood as auxiliary goals. But given the scheduled departure date, de Vere decided to make his polar approach first, and then spend the austral winter working through the Pacific Islands. The Antarctic held little interest to de Vere, and in the months leading up to the drawing up of the final orders for the expedition, his nights were plagued by dreams in which his ships struggled in icy seas. Once the orders came through and tied him to Antarctic goals, the dreams ended. De Vere committed himself to fulfilling his duties to the best of his abilities. He visited London to purchase the most recent charts and reports on Antarctic waters. There, he received assurances of the reliability of Waddell's reports and found the British somewhat affronted that anyone might consider an expedition in a region they considered their patch. While the British had done more to claim Antarctica than any other nation, that still amounted to very little, and I think it's a striking reflection of the British attitude toward anything they'd had anything to do with during the British imperial century that they would consider everything below the Antarctic Circle theirs, simply because we're British, don't you know? While in London, de Vere visited a phrenologist to have the bumps on his head examined. The cranioscopist told de Vere a load of stuff he wanted to hear about himself, affirming his confidence in this 19th century homeopathy, and the French expedition became the first voyage of exploration to carry a dedicated head-shape interpreter. I struggle to think of any trade that might prove less useful while navigating open oceans and pack ice. In an interesting coincidence, I met a practicing phrenologist as I prepared the notes for this episode. Apparently, I have an adventurous nature, though I do enjoy the comforts of home, and while I'm confident and assertive, sometimes I look to others for reinforcement. In my turn, I told him to get in the sea, which is where de Vere would have put Pierre de Mortier if he had any sense in these matters. The Astrolabe and the Zalie, commanded by de Vere's friend Charles Hector Jacquinot, were refitted at Toulon, but as the ships left the Mediterranean in September 1837, their crews were still stowing stores and equipment hastily brought aboard in an attempt to reach the Antarctic early enough in the southern summer to achieve their goals. De Vere left a plaque on the coast of Patagonia announcing his intentions in the south, and an American whaler delivered the news to Wilkes, still yet to leave Virginia, the first point scored in what was to become a fierce rivalry between the French and American projects. 
De Vere steered his ships in Waddell's track, southeast from Cape Horn. On meeting the pack, he failed to find Waddell's fabled break in the ice and the ice-free sailing conditions all the way to the pole that Waddell's experiences presaged. At the end of January, having not even crossed the circle, the French ships sailed for the South Orkney Islands to refill their larders hunting seals and penguins. Fog and storms prevented this hunting expedition, and a second attempt to follow Waddell's path began. This time the ships entered a three-kilometre-wide Polenia. Thinking their luck was in, and imagining their gold francs mounting up as they passed Waddell's record and carried on poleward, the crews celebrated. Overnight, the lead that admitted them to the open water closed up. De Vere, alert to the danger this presented, issued crowbars, pickaxes, and orders to use them to help keep the ice from locking around them. After five days of frantic work, the ships escaped their prematurely celebrated Polenia. Much longer, and it's likely the pack would have frozen solid, locking them in place for the southern winter. De Vere vowed to treat the pack with greater respect in future encounters. This experience didn't endear the Antarctic to De Vere. Already disposed to disdain the ice and eager to return to his beloved Oceania, De Vere's writing on the region recounts a terrible, silent, mournful realm of sad monotony. His sentiments recall those of James Cook, but as we'll address later, lie at odds with those of the British expedition to follow. Many crew members exhibited symptoms of scurvy and several experienced severe frostbite. With some already incapacitated and more crippled by ailments daily, the ships headed for South America. En route, De Vere charted the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, naming it King Louis-Philippe Land, adding a French moniker to the already confusing morass of names bestowed on the local geography. As the Astrolabe and Zali reached Talcahuano, Chile, De Vere speculated about Waddell's account of ice-free waters and worried about the American expedition. While the Americans would find themselves similarly blocked until the following summer, his own lack of achievement in the time he had the area to himself put the expeditions on a more level pegging. With several crew dead of their illnesses, nine deserting in Talcahuano, and the sickest left ashore to convalesce, the Astrolabe and Zali sailed north to Valparaiso. Letters awaiting De Vere there included two from his wife. The first recounted their youngest son's illness and recovery. The second, their son's relapse and death from cholera. The third child they had lost. His wife and his remaining son, in a separate letter, implored him to come home, the potential glory and honour failing to impress them that the separation was justified. De Vere, moved to tears as he read the plaintive missives, remained determined to carry out his orders in the Pacific. Upset at rumours circulating the port that the French fled at the first sign of ice, De Vere met with British officers and showed off his charts and diagrams, hoping to demonstrate he and his crews were made of the right Antarctic stuff. With dysentery replacing scurvy as the scourge of the crews, De Vere and Jacquinot needed to recruit new sailors to keep their vessels even close to adequately manned. The crews endured hard times during their South Pacific explorations, with 16 further men dying and more hospitalised by dysentery. 
Living conditions before the mast were grim, even on British naval vessels, the most orderly and disciplined vessels of the era. On the Astrolabe and the Zali, the crews took to using the bilges as their toilet, rather than make their way to the head at the bow in rough or cold weather. So what was uncomfortable quickly became unsanitary in the extreme. I don't mean to point this out particularly in the Astrolabe and the Zali. They weren't the only ships to become cesspits or the only crews to experience widespread illness as a result. The despondent de Vere wrote his will and expected death in short order, but his spirits revived on reaching Hobart in December 1839. Letters from home confirmed that his initial findings in the south aroused little interest and gave de Vere the spurs. The Astrolabe and Zelie were refitted and the revitalised de Vere made ready for a final foray to the ice, a plan he kept quiet from his crew, still recovering from their privations and illnesses and unlikely to be enthusiastic about a second summer of ice work. De Vere's enthusiasm received a beating when news arrived that Wilkes, based in Sydney, was ready for a second foray himself, though the tight-lipped Americans gave away no hints regarding what they'd achieved in their first season of exploration. John Biscoe visited both Wilkes in Sydney and De Vere in Hobart. Biscoe shared his findings freely, and based on his revelations, De Vere determined to seek a continental landfall south of Macquarie Island. After assessing his crews, he intended only sailing the Astrolabe, but Jacquinot begged to be included and changed his mind. Lieutenant Governor of Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, at the time, was a Royal Navy man with considerable exploration experience. Sir John Franklin sailed as a midshipman on Matthew Flinders' survey of Eastern Australia and led to overland attempts to chart the northern coast of North America. The first of Franklin's Arctic forays, from 1819 to 1822, left 11 of the 20 party members dead, and the remaining nine starving and shadowed by rumours of cannibalism. Franklin's poor planning and leadership may have caused some of the party's problems, but lauding failure so long as someone suffered a lot is something of a trope with the Brits, so he was given hero status and a second leadership role in the Arctic. The second expedition, 1825 to 1827, charted a thousand miles of coast, making it a roaring success. With no failure to applaud, England celebrated success with gongs from various societies and a knighthood. On New Year's Eve, 1839, Sir John held a ball in honour of the French explorers, and the following day, the Astrolabe and Zali, carrying their barely recovered crews, sailed down the Derwent, well-provisioned, and determined to do France proud. In a letter to the Minister of Marine, de Vere noted he broke with his explicit orders to sail south from New Zealand, specifically to forestall Wilkes and Ross's efforts south of Tasmania. By mid-January, the expedition crossed the Antarctic Circle for the first time. Land was sighted on the 20th. It warrants noting that de Vere, in crossing the dateline in the course of his travels to that point, failed to account for the loss of a day, and that the ship's log and all journals were at this point one day out of step with the rest of the world. A problem Magellan's crews encountered, leading to confusion over church attendance when the few survivors of that expedition returned home. De Vere felt confident they'd discovered a coast. Approaching close, the coast was revealed as ice cliffs, offering no landing sites. The cliffs, 
unbroken as far as the lookouts could see, forced the French to make a claiming ceremony on a tiny rocky outcrop, following the pattern set and upheld by British mariners. They raised a flag, drank some Bordeaux, and hacked off enough granite chips to demonstrate they'd been there and that there constituted solid ground, and not just another kaleidoscoping landscape of floating ice, before returning to the longboats. Terra Adélie and the Adélie Penguin are named for Devee's long-suffering wife. The water adjacent to the Adélie Land coast is now called the de mont de Sea. The coast charted by the Astrolabe and Zélie later formed the basis of the French territorial claim. The eastern and western ends of that exploration extend by international convention, with numerous objections, to the pole, like a segment of an orange. But more on this cartographically beguiling but arbitrary approach to divvying up a continent in later episodes. Sailing west, the crews were surprised to find the American brig Porpoise overtaking them under full sail. By De Vere's account, he ordered reduced sail to accommodate a meeting, but on seeing the Porpoise sail on at full speed, raised sail to try to keep up. By Wilkes' account, Captain Ringold, on seeing the French ships raising sail, assumed they didn't wish to communicate and sailed on. Given the American taciturnity in Sydney and Wilkes's orders to avoid giving any information away to competitors, I think it likely that Ringold deliberately snubbed the French on the orders of his paranoid leader. The expedition returned to Hobart in February 1840 and visited New Zealand, New Guinea, Timor and St Helena before returning to Toulon in November 1840. After three years away and making a fair show of fulfilling his orders, De Vere received a gold medal from the Society de Géographie and a promotion to Rear Admiral. Jacquinot and other officers also received promotions and the French government shared a reward of 15,000 francs among the surviving 130 crew. The last French voyage of exploration under sail, De Vere's third, was at an end. De Vere, having already lost three young children, died with his wife and remaining son when their train overturned and caught fire on the way home from Versailles in May 1842. De Mottier, the phrenologist, demonstrated his skills one benefit by positively identifying his commander's burnt scone. But I'm still not impressed, phrenology. Dentists can do that and fix people's teeth. De Vere's end wasn't the pauper's grave motif already established by so many Antarctic explorers, but it still leaves a lot to be desired. Publication of a 32-volume account of the geographical and scientific findings ran between 1842 and 1851. While only a small arc of the Antarctic coast received their attention, and the expedition never came within many degrees of their desired latitude record, the scientific legacy of the Astrolabe and Zélie was sealed in paper. Congratulations to Aaron, who correctly answered last episode's musical quiz question. The song snippet was from Meanwhile by Alexi Sale. I sent Aaron a copy of Chris Turney's excellent 1912, The Year the World Discovered Antarctica, for his troubles. Next episode, we catch up with the Americans. Take care and appreciate your coffee. <laughs>